Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Barrett Brown is a world-renowned expert on how to develop consciousness leaders to successfully navigate complex challenges in rapid change. His award-winning leadership and vertical learning model is being successfully applied by the United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, as well as being taught by various business schools across the world. Barrett, thank you for participating in this high-level consultation on the future of finance and financing change. And uh, welcome to our program. It's excellent to be here with you. I've really been looking forward to this. The purpose of this program is to have a transdisciplinary approach to addressing the post-COVID challenges that we're all being faced with. And as in the past, we have today a similar situation like after the 2008 financial crisis, where the governments all over the world are trying to address the issues, for instance, by providing more liquidity to sometimes already bankrupt systems without changing much. So we have seen that after the financial crisis of 2008, the trickle-down system that was supposed to provide liquidity and transform the economy and businesses didn't quite work. And so here we are in in a, in a higher, um, more aggravating situation, and we have, at the same time, a great opportunity. So from your perspective, how do you think should our financial, business, economic system, education, government, and, and so on, be transformed moving forward while we are providing the quantities of easing needed to get out of this immediate crisis? So there are many significant structural changes that need to happen going forward at the policy level, at economics, within our social systems, even culture. And what I'd like to focus on, because I know you have experts that will be covering many of those areas, I'd like to focus on one of the most under-noticed yet highly leveraged areas that we can make significant improvements in that will ultimately lead to the transformation into a future that we all want. And that has to do with the core mind shift in leaders, in investors, in entrepreneurs that is necessary to actually facilitate large-scale transformation. And so let's dive into that a little bit, Marianne. But Fundamentally, this is an area that you've paid a lot of attention to over the years. So I'm just curious, initial thoughts on on that area as a piece of the puzzle from you. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's key. It's from a psychological point of view. And, you know, like you, I have a PhD in psychology. And uh, the reason for that is because we see that what we see on the outside is actually driven by the inside. And so mind shift is, of course, key to uh, transformation. So I would really welcome your, your views on this, given the fact that other than I, where I'm focusing on early stage entrepreneurship and startup companies and building 
integrally sustainable companies, your, your focus is also on helping larger organizations that do have a large impact in the economy uh, also shift. So I would very much welcome your input on this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have the privilege to work both in some of the largest organizations in, in the world, like a trillion dollar tech company and some of the largest environmental and social NGOs on the planet. Yet I also have a cadre of change agents and leaders around the world that I work one-on-one -on -one with that are advancing significant environmental or social initiatives as well. So fundamentally, here's, here's the big sort of theory of change. If we recognize that there's a future that we all want that includes global sustainability, socially, environmentally, economically, to transform to that particular new state, that's going to require deep structural shifts. Everybody talks about that. And there's lots of fantastic work being done out there. However, structural change doesn't happen unless people do it. And the reason why people do it is because of their own motivations and because of the cultural support for doing that. And so that means that in order for us to have a transformational change strategy at a structural level, we have to have concurrently a cultural change strategy and an individual change strategy too. Because without doing that fundamental kind of invisible change of cultures and, and individuals, there simply won't be sufficient uh, capacity to actually execute the complex and sophisticated work of the structural change. And so if you look at what individuals can do, there's their outer game, which is their behavior, and then there's their inner game, which is how they make sense of the world. And again, to change the outer world, you gotta change the inner world. So what this comes down to is that a big piece of the puzzle for large scale transformation of our systems toward a future we all want is doing some significant inner game work, specifically amongst those who have authority, power, and influence to actually drive the structural change. That's been the focus of my work for close to 20 years now. And it's become clear to me that there are three specific areas where investors, entrepreneurs, and anyone who's committed to a future that works for all can focus on that'll really help to unlock the capacity needed for us to actually scale transformational change. So we can dive into those. I'm just curious, though, from you, kind of, again, high-level high input around that theory of change going forward. Brilliant, yes. I, I think what, um, what would help our listeners is maybe a short introduction on how individuals evolve. Very short, from ego to integral. Sure. And um, maybe also, since you mentioned culture, which is built off many individuals, how do cultures change and how do these two play together? Sure. 
I think, Mariana, the easiest way to think of it is that just as a oak tree is, goes from being an acorn to a sapling to a medium-sized tree to a majestic tree, we all go through a similar developmental process internally. And there's close to 130 years of research on this, going all the way back to uh, William James at, at Harvard. And so fundamentally, the shift that individuals go through is one from being focused on themselves, egocentric is what it's called in the literature, in sort of like a healthy egocentric perspective, to focusing on themselves plus those that are like them, and that's called ethnocentric or sociocentric, like the people around you, to a shift to caring about themselves and those that are like them and everybody else. So we call that world-centric. And then beyond that, there's a shift to caring for all of that plus everything in existence, right? And so that's more like planet-centric, where we care for all of the life on Earth and want it to thrive and flourish. So there's decades and decades of research kind of mapping out that developmental journey in individuals. And what's relevant for our listeners is that those major steps in human development are directly correlated with increased leadership effectiveness. And leaders who are trying to lead transformational change literally must be able to make meaning and hold these later developmental stages, sort of world-centric, planet-centric, or, or integral, in, to actually pull it off. And that's simply because there are these advanced capacities, mental capacities, emotional capacities, thinking capacities that come online as we make these developmental shifts that enable people to be better strategic thinkers, better systems thinkers, to listen more closely, take in more perspectives, etc. So that's, that's the general individual developmental model. And because individuals grow in that direction, actually cultures do as well. And so if you, again, look at the research on this, there are cultural developmental shifts where essentially cultures go from caring just for the, their in-group to caring for all of humanity, all, all of the world. So I think that that's a, a fair developmental pathway to, to offer up to folks. And, you know, probably the easiest way for people to think about this is going back to, you know, your early college psych class on with with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and essentially humans go through that developmental shift of just caring for what they need to be secure and eat to a sense of belonging to ultimately actualization to Maslow's highest level actually had to do with kind of self-transformation and so those those developmental tra trajectories are just built into us and Fortunately, we have a lot of science and experience on how to accelerate that developmental path so that we can literally cultivate the type of entrepreneurial and investment leadership required to drive transformational change. Those of us who have children or no children know how long it takes to bring about transformation. So the question here is, given the fact that based on scientific research, we only have 10 years to really influence uh, the, 
let's say the environmental systems that to address the uh, climate change changes, for instance, that are currently taking place. How do you think, how would you suggest going about identifying those who already are there and who can go ahead and bring about the transformation? And how do we empower, how can they get empowered, those who get it, who are already there at the world-centric or beyond uh, mind shift? Because as you said, this is a leadership question. And we don't have time to wait for that kind of transformation uh, to occur, given the 10 years time frame. Sure. So there are very simple yet sophisticated uh, developmental assessments that we use with executives and leaders around the world to help them essentially identify where they are in this developmental trajectory and also help investors who are making decisions about whether or not to invest in a company. So you, you can roll out those sorts of assessments and that's relatively easy. However, if I were to say, what are some of the key indicators to look for just to get kind of a sense of it as you're looking across a, a group of leaders, you wanna look for someone who is fundamentally not attached to their own perspective and who's super curious and always taking in new viewpoints and really open to pivoting and shifting how they're making sense of things. Someone who really assumes that they only have a partial truth and their job is to get out there and get the partial truths from everybody else and help the group weave together a, a broad, holistic way of making sense of a complex situation. So you look for that. You look for people that are able to do systems thinking facilely, where they can essentially get up on the balcony easily, look across a broad, holistic view and identify the real drivers that are influencing any given situation beyond just the people and the groups involved, but really the structural drivers, the systems drivers, the economic, financial, technological drivers, cultural drivers, relationship drivers, even mental model drivers as well, right? So if you've got someone who's naturally doing that along the way and who's very agile in their strategy and their theory of transformational change, where they're constantly adapting it and pivoting, that's a really good indication that probably that person is already holding one of these most sophisticated ways of kind of making sense of the world that we might call integral. Now, our current systems, whether it be government, uh, finances, uh, business leaders, and so on, are already in power. From your perspective, how can these people bring about the shift that we all need? What what can what would you recommend doing? Um, how should we allocate capital, money, resources to those that uh, we think would could bring about change? So. Lots of organizations are already doing this. There are significant foundations like the Ford Foundation that are investing deeply in the development of activists and leaders on the social and environmental side. There are significant corporations that are investing deeply in their high potentials to literally build the transformational systems they need to be as responsive to a complex business environment in the future, which includes more and more attending to the multi-stakeholder needs of environment and society 
as part of an overall business model. And so there are many ways to actually do this, but fundamentally what the, the core process of change here is to identify who has authority, power, and influence in a given system. And then to do a stakeholder analysis where you look at what are their core motivations? What are they moving toward that you can naturally help them continue to move toward that is in alignment with a future we all want? So very practically, a lot of the work that I did about a decade ago was helping to transform large-scale agri-commodity systems, working with a Dutch foundation that focused on sustainable supply chains. And so we brought together Unilever, Mars, Nestle, and some of the largest NGOs in the world like WWF, Rainforest Alliance, in addition to the governments in the North and South. And all of them had their own motivations for why to have sustainable cacao for chocolate production or sustainable tea, such as you know, Unilever transforming Lipton so that it was sustainably certified. They all had, had their own reasons why that was important. And the work that we did was to bring together those key stakeholders and get them focused on a, a clear goal that everybody wanted for their own reasons and let them do it for their own reasons. And quite frankly, there were situations where when we were working in West Africa, for example, Mariana in the cocoa supply chain, the government of Cote d'Ivoire fundamentally wanted to stay in power and they needed to make improvements in the cocoa supply chain so they'd get votes and demonstrate that they could actually do something so they would continue to get the money that came out of that because 40% of cocoa production comes out of Cote d'Ivoire. So they were nonetheless major players. And so we weren't in there trying to tell them that they needed to be different people and to fundamentally care for the farmers like the NGOs did. Rather, they were a major player. They were there for their reasons. The NGOs were there for their reasons. And the big corporations like Mars and Nestle were there for their reasons as well. Brand reputation, risk mitigation, access to sustainable supply. My point is this. By getting together those that had authority, power, and influence in that system and getting them aligned toward a goal like 20 million tons of sustainably certified cocoa, we were able to move that whole system forward in a quite rapid way. And a big key to that was letting people be who they are, but understanding their core motivations. And in like an Aikido way, where you move with their momentum to help them move in the direction toward that sustainability goal. So that's, that's a key way to essentially work with existing leadership is to just get curious, really curious in a non-judgmental way about what do they want and how can we move toward what they want and a future that works for all. So I'm going to ask a, a difficult question here. Um, if you were to consult with, let's say, Ursula von der Leyen, the, the head of the European Commission, who is currently, or Angela Merkel for that matter, the German chancellor, or uh, Donald Trump or his financial advisors and so on, 
for the government of the United States. How would you recommend they go about implementing these these important shifts on on a mind shift level, on a personal level? So, first of all, let's talk about what those three key shifts are that'll make the biggest difference in anyone's leadership. And specifically, if you're an investor, in if you're an entrepreneur, these are the moves that you want to be cultivating in yourself and in those around you. And the three key shifts have to do with your effectiveness in decision-making in complex situations. The second one has to do with your ability to hunt for your shadows, which is essentially the parts of yourself that are disowned, that you don't want to admit are there, and you, and you don't want to face. And the third one has to do with systems thinking and being able to take a holistic view across the system and really understand and work with it. So with respect to decision-making, most people haven't ever studied how to make effective decisions in moderately complex, much less complex situations. And so while they may be using their gut and they're smart and they've kind of been relatively successful along the way, we can rapidly increase our effectiveness in decision-making by essentially looking at our decision-making process, paying attention to some of the best practices out there so that we don't fall into the pitfalls and the typical blunders of poor decision-making and actually execute more effectively. So one of the keys to really, really strong decision-making is perspective seeking. And that means getting out, understanding who are the key stakeholders regarding this particular initiative and systematically going through and speaking with them and finding out from them how they're making sense of the situation, what they think the root cause is, what they think can be done about it. And then your role as a leader is to work with them to bring together all of those different perspectives from the different stakeholders into this mosaic of meaning and then define a course of action that takes into account that sophisticated reality. And it, that fundamentally requires a significant humility where you're not in the space thinking you're the smartest person in the room, but rather you're the best questioner in the room. Really that perspective detective looking curiously for new insights that, that you know are out there because you, there's only a limited amount that you see. So that's, that's the decision-making piece. The shadow hunting piece at a high level is one of the biggest blocks that I see with very senior leaders and just about anyone who's in their 40s and 50s and 60s. If they've done a fair amount of professional development, personal development over the course of their life, the stuff they're bumping up against are things that are long-term chronic internal dynamics that they just haven't cracked the code on yet. And there's a lot of work about how to break through that stuff. However, it, it requires deeper work. And just like we're trying to do deeper structural change here, uh, that requires some, some deeper work on, on your inner game. And interestingly enough, a lot of that is possible by paying attention to what's actually going on in your body. Because 
issues are stored in tissues is a way of thinking about it. And basically all that stuff that's holding us back from high performance is somehow our nervous system contracted and contorted in a particular way where it's frozen up. And so anyway, there's, there's a lot of really powerful moves that leaders can make in that area where they'll unleash huge amounts of energy, mental capacity, emotional, relational capacity by turning in and working on those areas. And we've seen it time and time and time again. The third area has to do with systems thinking. And one of the biggest limitations that leaders have these days is that they're just in over their heads and their mental complexity doesn't meet the task complexity that's required to deal with the type of change we're really talking about and how to pull it off. However, there's lots of best practices out there around how to do really effective systems thinking where you're seeing a very big picture, you're up on the balcony, you're looking at what, what's the root cause, what are the patterns in the system, what are the drivers structurally, culturally, from a mindset perspective, and essentially designing interventions that are taking that into account. And that can be trained Anybody pretty much can develop that capacity, and it is a huge unlocking move for leaders to be able to do that themselves and actually uh, train their people to do it as well. Brilliant. Thank you. That, that was very insightful, and uh, I hope people are interested in, in digging more and getting in touch with you and uh, hiring you to do that. So I would like to shift a little bit now to the role of exponentially growing technologies. You just mentioned the growing complexity of the world and our more or less ability to grow with it or encompass them and embrace them all and understand it and let alone understand, uh, address them. So we are living in an in a exponentially growing uh, technology world that uh, facilitates our lives as we've seen COVID-19 showed us how, how important it was for us to, well, first of all, to connect via Zoom as we do right now or um, order more stuff online that we would have otherwise have had to go to a store to buy and so on. But also the role of uh, technology in addressing uh, challenges that we have, for instance, using drones to plant trees and uh, revitalize our um, our the lungs of the world, or using robots to plant uh, the oceans with new life. All important technology. At the same time, one of we mentioned climate change as a global existential threat, potential one, uh, but artificial intelligence, for instance, could also go in this direction if we put these two and two together, egocentric thinking and with uh, an application of artificial intelligence that is developed from that mindset. Can you give us your insight on your view moving forward and how to handle exponentially growing technology and use them to serve us rather than exploit us. Absolutely. So there's a rich dialogue out there about how essentially we have one chance to get AI right. Uh, 
because of the speed at which it can develop itself if we build into it some sort of errors that make humans not so useful then it could easily turn upon us for example so there's kind of a great research and funding and experimentation being done right now around essentially emotionally intelligent and morally strong ai programming itself right so that's that's a big piece because truly any weapon or any tool can be a weapon if you hold it right and ai is no exception we will probably see some sort of battle of AI in the future, and those are going to be crazy times. However, yes, this is a AI and, exp- and other exponential technologies are absolutely a piece of the puzzle for moving things forward. And so, for example, uh, I'm doing work right now within a $15 billion uh, supermarket system and that serves 8 million consumers. And during the COVID crisis, they had situations where 50% of their workforce in their warehouses were out. And even situations where their entire workforce for a warehouse was pulled out by the union because someone amongst the workforce got COVID-19. And so this, like, Food and food supply systems are essential businesses. And to see the fragility of that supply chain at that particular junction was was incredible. And there's a very, very, very strong case to be made for accelerating the automation of our food delivery system in a way that ensures that people have work, in a way that repurposes and helps people to recreate their careers, of course. However, we run a serious risk if we do not attend to that type of automation at the most essential level of sort of food delivery and and, and ha- having access to food supply. So that's a, that's a simple example. There are there's phenomenal stuff being done around the world to help ensure again a future we all want using AI. Uh, one of the organizations that I partner with has developed an AI system that goes on boats in the Asia Pacific area and monitors the fish catch, and it literally identifies every single fish that's caught, tabulates it, and essentially helps the the fishing boats to stay within regulations and also monitors authority or notifies authorities if there is an inappropriate catch that's that's been made and so that type of massive data analysis and and uh, kind of automation is is exceptionally powerful and we'll see more and more and more of that so Fundamentally, what I would want to encourage is that we have as much experimentation as possible in obviously morally and intelligent ways that are taking into consideration the human impact, but as much experimentation as possible with exponential technologies and AI that helps us to get to that future we all want. And if we just get up on the balcony and think about how systems change, Fundamentally, one of the most powerful things that we can do is remember that we have no control over these big complex adaptive systems that we're trying to change. 
and whether it's our economic system or our culture or democracy, no one has control over any of that. And however, we can get clear about the destination that we want these systems to develop toward and then begin to create the conditions for those systems to develop in that direction. And one of the ways that we create those conditions is we look for what's working. We run lots of experiments at the edges of the system. And in systems theory, complexity theory, this is called a positive deviance when something's actually working. So you're looking for what's working and then you're scaling it across the rest of the system. <coughs> so that's a very practical approach that funders can take is to essentially set up as many experiments as possible that will help us essentially learn what works around new economic models, around new ways of protecting the environment, around new ways of ensuring that there, we have a, a, a workforce that is educated and employed. And, and there's, there's huge, huge work to do there and huge, huge potential. So let's go back a little bit. Um, we have a few more minutes on making it very clear the correlation between artificial intelligence developers, for example, systems, any kind, any kind of technology developers, and the interior mindset that we started with. Because I think that needs to be clearly understood by our listeners. Uh, because from my perspective, from our, I believe you have the same opinion, is uh, that's a big uh, lever that can influence development. Um, because one thing is to invite somebody on a balcony, and the other is to have people want to join and go to the balcony, which brings a higher perspective. So how do we help people evolve? As you said, the tools are just as good as uh, as the people that are developing in us, our decision to use them. So is your question, My, please go ahead. Yeah, the correlation between uh, personal development and vertical growth and, uh, and uh, exponential technology development and uh, systems development. Because what I'm trying to get to um, also, it's, 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 it's also because the conversation that we have right now is around uh, changing financing, financing change. And uh, one hand, on one hand, we have finance, that, uh, the, the capital that is needed in order to develop these tools. On the other hand is how do, you, how do we develop them in a way that serves us all? And of course, um, the intention making the capital available doesn't necessarily ensure that the interior development takes place unless there is conscious work, as you said, you know, decision making and um, shadow, addressing the shadows and then system thinking. The question is, how can we use capital to develop the systems that, that serve us all? Sure. So. Uh... I'm working with a foundation now around this very question. They're looking at their investments and the direction that they want to go to 
again, create that future that works for all? And how do they invest in leaders in the organizations that they're engaged in that will actually drive what you call vertical development or vertical learning, which for our listeners is simply that process of going from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to to planet-centric and integral. So that process, if you have access to capital, the most important thing to remember is that transformation takes time and it won't be sustained unless the people themselves are transforming. It's as simple as if, if, you, want to, if you want transformation, you have to change and the people that are involved in that system have to change. And we can do a fair amount with that case that I pointed out around helping people to be where they are and just move with their own motivations toward an external goal. We can make a lot of progress in that way. And fundamental work needs to be done along the way to help deep transformation to happen. So one of the highest leverage areas to invest in as part of supporting organizations, whether you're an investor investing in, in entrepreneurs or whether you are investing in organizations and, and, and companies that are experimenting with, with new models for a future that works for all, is to really look at what is the, the mind, the sort of the, the mind capital of that organization? And how healthy is that? How healthier are those mental resources? Because the vast majority of entrepreneurs that are out there have not made the shift yet to the type of inner game that enables them to actually design and lead transformational change, period. And however, it is very possible to radically accelerate them in that way. And that practically ranges from having one-on-one work with them, working with their teams, working with, in the case of this trillion dollar tech organization, helping them to build large scale transformational change programs that go out to thousands of their leaders, to using AI, to democratize and demonetize and decentralize the process of upping our inner game. And so there's all sorts of experiments out there with respect to that as well that are happening. So there's lots of ways to intervene here. The core point being that money is wasted if it isn't working at the root cause and the root conditions for transformation because if we don't make those moves in the leaders that we're working with, they will continue to be in over their heads, make suboptimal decisions that just prioritize their economic needs or their personal drives and end up actually causing more harm at times than support or at least being neutral in their impact. Last question. Two-part question. What are tools that would be faster in accelerating this development process? And and what about meditation? Maybe maybe a third uh, aspect here. Is there most people are 
don't want to lead. So they're just happy doing what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. So this is basically a leadership issue. Those of, of us who want to go be the pioneers of change can go ahead and do it. I, I doubt that most people would want to do that. Is there a tipping point? So first question, how can we accelerate the process? Um, what is the tipping point? And what are tools that would help um, accelerate the process, for instance, meditation or contemplation. We all know that um, most people are, uh, many people have um, taken up meditation or yoga or some sort or sort of contemplation in order to accelerate their, their inner growth. And scientific research shows that that could accelerate uh, the transformation, the inner transformation. What are your thoughts on those? So the right type of meditation at the right time for people absolutely will deeply drive their development. And there's lots of meditation programs, unfortunately, though, that are not right for people at where they are. And so the latest research that I've seen in this area is really that at different phases of our lives, different approaches have profoundly different levels of, of impact. And people can get stuck in an eddy of development by basically just continuing with one approach to meditation that they've done all their lives. So absolutely, mindfulness meditation is a piece of the puzzle. Any type of reflective work that someone does, such as journaling or being in kind of conscious dialogue with someone who can help them to stay at a kind of a more sophisticated view. It could even be, you know, walking a dog and kind of speaking internally to yourself and and reflecting on things. All of that leads to taking issues that are we're struggling to make sense out of, getting them out in the open. And very practically, if you write it down or you speak it out, then what happens is that the information comes back in through both of your eyes, both of your ears, and then both uh, halves of both hemispheres of your brain are processing it. And so you get another round of sort of cycle of integration and thinking about it. And so that's super powerful because the move that you're making is essentially trying to objectify these issues so you can see them from multiple perspectives. That leads to another very powerful accelerator to transformation, which is perspective taking and really clashing, actively clashing your perspective against other perspectives out there, meaning putting yourself into environments where you are out of your league, people see the world in entirely different ways, and you are really challenged to make sense of how can their partial truth coexist with your partial truth. And essentially stretch to include both what you thought the way was how to make sense of things plus what they're seeing. That process itself will will radically drive things. And then the the third piece is recognizing that every time that I get angry, that I get sad, that I am fearful at any level is a basically an invitation to transformation in those instances is a doorway saying, I'm locked up in some way. And that can be unlocked. 
And that's the shadow work that we've talked about. And so if a leader or investor is going through their day and have any moments where they're feeling essentially off, where they're tweaked, they're emotionally hijacked, angry, fearful, those are major, major invitations to a future self that is possible if they simply turn and engage that rather than ignoring it and moving on and just executing another transactional engagement. So those are some of the, the key things that, that can be done. And I have uh, really huge belief in humanity's ability to move through this time, both with respect to our inner game and our outer game and the transformational systems that we're, we're creating and bringing about. Well, what a wonderful way to, to end our uh, chat this time around. Thank you very much, Barrett, for your generosity and time and insight and wisdom. It's been a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Absolutely, Mariana, it's a pleasure. And let me just say, I'm really, really delighted by your book. It is a absolute game changer in the investing space. And I am very, very humbly appreciative of the tremendous work you put into making it happen over all the years of research. And I trust it'll have very deep impact in the years to come. Oh my God, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.